I'm going to be reading this morning from the Gospel according to Luke. We are in chapter 1 still. I'm going to begin reading at verse... uh, Excuse me. I'm going to take... I need to get my voice back. Last week, we took a look at Mary's song. And this week, we're taking a look at the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah's song. And beginning with verse 57, chapter 1, we read, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Let's stop there to begin this morning and take a look at the words, the Lord had shown great mercy to her. I think it's useful to read this passage as not just simply referring to the blessing Elizabeth has received by being given a child, but it should also be read as Elizabeth's vindication. Because if I understand it correctly, in ancient Palestine, if a woman was barren, if she was unable to give birth to a child, that was considered disgraceful. People saw that as a sign of God's disapproval. And if God disapproves of someone or a group of people, it's undoubtedly because of some sin in their life. And we see the same attitude displayed in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, when the disciples come across a man who was born blind from birth. And they see this man who was born blind from birth, and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you see the assumption behind that question. This man was born blind. There must be sin in it. And Jesus tells them that they are wrong, that the man didn't sin and his parents did not sin, but he was born blind so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. And if the community was guilty of judging Elizabeth for being barren, they were wrong to do so because we just simply do not have enough knowledge to be able to make those kinds of judgments, whether it's in someone else's life or whether it's in our own life. And uh, this isn't to say, by the way, that God does not discipline those he loves. He does. And this is made clear in the book of Hebrews. This is also made clear in the book of Revelation. But we have to be careful about seeing the variations in our prosperity as being divine judgments, either in our favor or against us. But in this particular case, Elizabeth is vindicated in the eyes of the community, because she is given a child. The Lord has shown great mercy to her, and the time has now come to name that child. And naming a child can be, (coughs) pardon me, a delicate process. I 
my wife just gave birth to our firstborn, as most of you, if not all of you know, about a month ago. And Pastor Bill's firstborn son, Kyle, he graciously gave me permission when he found my wife, when he found out my wife was pregnant, he gave me permission to name my child after him. Uh, That was gracious because I didn't ask for that permission. Interestingly enough, when I told him that we were having a girl, that didn't seem to bother him that much. His attitude was, well, you can still name her after me. Now, we didn't see a vision of angels, uh, but my wife and I knew that that's not the name that she was going to have. However, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth did see a vision, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 59 down to verse 66. And on the eighth day there came to, they came, pardon me, to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then? Will this child be for the hand of the Lord is with him? Now here, to a small degree, Zechariah and Elizabeth are put to the test because they have been instructed to do something which goes against the grain of the culture in which they live. Something that's very unfashionable, even if it isn't particularly sinful. And this is demonstrated by the response Elizabeth receives when she tells those who came to circumcise the child that his name is going to be John. They just simply refuse to believe Elizabeth. This is not something that you do. None of your relatives are named John. That can't possibly be the child's name. And so they try to find a way to communicate with Zechariah to get the real story. And Zechariah, to his credit, reaffirms what his wife had already told them. They knew that they were supposed to name the child John, and they were going to do that despite whatever the community might happen to think about that. And in that way, they do serve as a good example for us to follow, that even when we are asked, so to speak, to do something which is culturally unfashionable. We need to hold fast to what we know the will of God to be and not care about what the community happens to think about it. But in this case, once again, we see God's vindication through a miraculous sign because as soon as Zechariah affirms that, yes, the boy's name is John, he immediately regains his ability to speak. And this has a profound impact on the community. They didn't just see this as an interesting little anecdote. They saw it and interpreted it as a sure sign 
that God is going to do something very, very special with this child. And news immediately begins to spread, the gospel tells us, throughout all of the hill country of Judea. And fear even sees the community. They really had a sense that God was moving amongst them in a special way. And they were trying to anticipate what is God doing because he's doing something and it's going to involve this child and they were right. And that brings us to Zachariah's song. I'm going to begin reading that now at verse 67 down to the end of chapter 1. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, this song can roughly be broken into two sections. The first one is what you might call a benediction. And it begins with verse 68 and goes down to verse 75. That would be section one. Uh, the second section would just be what we would call prophecy. And that begins with verse 76 and concludes with verse 79. And I think scholars like Joel B. Green are right when they tell us that if you look at these two different sections of the song, you're actually given two different pictures of salvation. That isn't to say that they're conflicting it's just to say that there are two different angles on what salvation is. And when we look at verses 68 through 75, and we read words like that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. These words have heavy echoes of the Exodus. Now, we recently celebrated our National Day of Independence, July 4th. And I think many people would say that that's a defining moment for us as Americans, the Revolutionary War. 
when we fought for our independence. And I think it's very helpful when you're reading the Old Testament especially to remember that the Exodus is arguably the single most important event in the whole of the Old Testament. This is what defined the people of Israel. When God, as it were, took them by the hand and delivered them out of the house of slavery in Egypt, delivered them from the hands of those who hated them so that they could be brought into the wilderness and worship God freely. And whereas we fought for our liberty through military campaign, in a sense, the ancient Hebrews didn't do anything. God did it all through the power of his signs and wonders. And this was the people of God. And when we move from that era to the era that we're now in called the Second Temple Period, there were many Jews that were anticipating that God was going to do the same thing. Maybe not exactly the same thing, but somehow he was going to take Israel and make her the world's new superpower. And all of these other nations that had harassed her, had oppressed her, had trampled her underfoot, now they were all going to be subjugated to ethnic Israel, and they were going to serve her. That was the anticipation that many of them had, possibly what Zechariah was thinking as he spoke these words. But that wasn't going to happen. As some of you may know, it wasn't just 70 years later that the Romans were going to enter the city of Jerusalem and utterly utterly destroy it the real enemy was not the roman empire it was not greece it was not persia it was not babylon it was not assyria the real enemy that needed to be dealt with first in order for any kind of serious liberation to transpire is sin and when we move to the prophecy section of this song, we begin to see a wider picture of salvation growing up. It's not referring to just simply a political salvation. But he says, and you, O child, referring to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. There's an ancient Christian document that is known as the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, is just a simple document that outlines some of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, such as we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was resurrected. 
he ascended, he will return to judge the living and the dead. But there's also a line in that creed which is interesting because in the creed there is the words, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay on forgiveness which was published in a book called The Weight of Glory. And he said he used to wonder why that was in the creed at all. Because as Christians, shouldn't we just take it for granted that we believe in the forgiveness of sins? It seems so obvious to him. But he said, whoever compiled that creed thought that that was something that people were going to be, people needed to be reminded of every time they went to church. Because, of course, in many churches and many denominations, the creed is read every time people gather and go to church. Why did that need to be in there? And the conclusion that he came to, and I think he was right, is that it needed to be in there because it is extremely difficult to believe in the forgiveness of sins. It takes an act of real faith. And I think there's two reasons why this is difficult. And let me deal with them in turn, starting with the first one. Because we forget who Jesus is. Now, I want to um, take a few minutes to go over some of the passion with you. And the reason I'm doing this is not (laughs) to be sentimental and to tug on people's heartstrings. I know as pastors, we are guilty of that oftentimes. I confess (laughs) that's not my object. I I want to take a cool look at this because it's important to realize how this connects to the forgiveness of sin. When we think of Jesus' last day leading up to his crucifixion, we take a look at some of the things that he experienced. That night begins, or his trial begins, with a betrayal of one of his close followers. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced being betrayed by someone who you considered your friend, someone you treated as a friend, someone who you were close to. But anyone who has ever experienced something like that knows how bitter it is. In fact, if you read Dante's Divine Comedy, he assigns the lowest place in hell for people who have betrayed their masters. Now, whether he's right in that or not is another question. I'm just using it to illustrate the point that, yes, this is a grievous sin, And that's what happened to Jesus. We shouldn't underestimate even that point of the story, Judas' betrayal. Well, he's arrested. He's taken before the Sanhedrin, and he's at a kangaroo court where people are giving conflicting testimony, and they can't figure out what they're going to do to condemn him. They know they're going to condemn him. They just need some sort of an excuse to do so. And they finally settle on blasphemy. He's committed blasphemy. That's what we're going to do. And so he's condemned to death. And then they begin to mock him. But when they mock him, that's not just that the Sanhedrin began to tease him and call him names. They put a blindfold on him and started smacking him around. And then saying, you're a prophet. Prophesy. Tell us who just smacked you. Now imagine what this would be like. You have... Just been betrayed by a close friend. You've had a sleepless night. You've been condemned for a crime you did not commit. 
and now you've been blindfolded and people are hitting you around. Well, that's not the end of it. And then he's handed over the next day to the Romans. Now, the Romans had never seen anyone quite like Jesus, but they had dealt with these revolutionary types before. They know the kind. These people who want to think that they're somebody, that they're going to stand up to the greatness of Rome, and now they have the supposed king of the Jews. And so they mock him. They put a purple robe on him, purple because that was what kings wore. Put a crown of thorns on his head, then sarcastically worship him. Hail the king, the great king of the Jews. That's you. He's handed over. He's beaten so badly. He's so exhausted that he can't even carry his cross to the place of his crucifixion. He has to have help. Uh, someone does carry the cross. They take him to Calvary. He's crucified. The mocking doesn't stop. As he's dying on the cross, they are still mocking him because you have to realize in their minds, this is a sure sign that this is a false prophet. This has got to be a false prophet. Only a false prophet would be crucified. There, Jesus is exposed to the whole world. And in, by the way, uh, modern art is very modest. Well, it's not just modern. It's ancient as well in depicting the crucifixion. People were crucified naked in the ancient world. That's another thing to take into consideration, how humiliating this kind of death was. He's there. He saved others. He can't save himself. If you're the Messiah, come down from your cross. It just continues. And then as Jesus is, is dying, he looks out on all the people who have mocked him, spit on him, ridiculed him, who are killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, why do I remind us of all of this? All of this is just to say, Jesus is the perfect representation of God the Father. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He's exactly like God the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, because that's exactly what God is like. And if God was willing to forgive all of that, I think it's safe to say that he's willing to forgive you. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe that you don't have to come to God with an excuse or an explanation? You see, so oftentimes in our own experience with people that we know, if we do something wrong, if we hurt somebody, we can't just simply say, I was wrong. We have to have some sort of a reason. We have to have an excuse. We have to have an explanation. But that's ridiculous. Because sin is inexcusable. That's the point. If it was excusable, it wouldn't be sin. You wouldn't need forgiveness. Do you believe that you can just go to God and say, God, I was wrong and you will be forgiven? That's the first reason, I think, that we have difficulty believing in the forgiveness of sins. And the second is this. There are many teachings in the scriptures, there are many sayings of Jesus that are difficult to understand. Many that I've looked into and that I'm still trying to hammer out myself. But there are some things that he made crystal clear. And one of the things that he made crystal clear is this. If we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. 
There is no exceptions. He just said it. There it is. And if I find in my heart that I have difficult believing that God can truly forgive me, one of the first things I need to do is I need to search and I need to ask myself, is there someone who I have failed to forgive? Someone who has hurt me, someone who has done something wrong, whatever it might be. Maybe it's someone who refuses to forgive me, and for that reason, I don't want to forgive them. Whatever resentment there is, we need to search it, we need to find it out, and then we need to, as it were, just bear it before God. Confess that sin. Confess, God, I'm guilty of not forgiving this person the way that I know that I should. Will you forgive me? We believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's a, there's a beautiful passage in Isaiah, and this is where I'm going to close this morning. It's in Isaiah chapter 57. Verse 15. It reads like this. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, I had read that verse so many times without really appreciating what it's telling us. Part of it's obvious. When you read that first half of the verse, you know, I am God and I dwell. Where does God dwell? He dwells in the high and holy places. Of course he does. That's God. That's where God lives. But what is this second part that says, and with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Now, what does the word contrite mean? It means remorseful. It means someone who sincerely regrets what they've done. Now, think about that. Who needs to be contrite? A perfect person? Would a perfect person be contrite? And the answer is no. Because a perfect person, a blameless person, a person without sin has no reason to be contrite. Sinners have a reason to be contrite. This verse is saying that the same God who dwells in high and holy places dwells with sinners who sincerely and humbly come before him and seek his mercy because they know that they have done wrong. Our God is not just the God of the perfect. He is the God of the imperfect as well. And he dwells with them. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, I thank you for the beautiful day you've given us and for the opportunity to worship here this morning. And I pray that you would grant us joy and peace, faith, mercy, kindness, and love towards you 
and towards those that you have chosen to bring within our sphere of influence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.